would please look with me in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 10. We're looking this morning at verses 24. We're going to go to verse 31. We're going to say verse 32 for next week. I'm going to read for you this morning verses 24 all the way down to verse 39, just to put this passage in the larger context. And, and this is the theme for the next several weeks that we really need to be focusing on. The point that I want to draw your attention to this morning is we're looking at verses 24 to verse, to basically all the way to verse 39, as we'll be preaching on this text over the next several weeks, is that evangelism is not optional. It's not. In the same way that we as Christians are called to have a personal relationship with God the Father through the Son by the Spirit, utilizing such resources as His Word and praying and participation in church and life group. In, in the same way that those things are absolutely critical to our growing in our spiritual walk with the Lord and growing with faith and growing closer to Him, one of the most neglected and yet equally vital spiritual disciplines is evangelism. And that's going to become very, very prominent as we look at these next verses. Evangelism is just as important as prayer, Bible reading, scripture memorization, church participation, Sunday worship, life group. Evangelism is just as important as all of those other activities for forming our souls and helping us to grow closer to the Lord and to become more godly. So let's read it, verse 24. We're going to go verses 24 to 39. We're going to look very carefully today at verses 24 to 31. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his own father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning on Father's Day. And we know, Lord, that this is the day in which we say thank you to the men who have shaped us, who have molded us, who have raised us. And we know, Lord, that this is a wonderful gift. Ultimately, it is a reflection of you, our truest, greatest Father. And Lord, as we reflect on this text this morning, I pray that we would see our need as men with children or not, even if we're just single men. The need to walk with honor according to your pattern and the path that you have laid out before us. Help us to be like you with our kids. Help us to be like you with the many kids that we have here at Bridge Baptist Church. Lord, help us to fear you more than this world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, pastors get together sometimes and they will pray and encourage each other. Four different pastors got together and they were discussing uh, their ministries and their lives and just the way that uh, events were going in their churches, just to encourage each other and, and uh, to try to try to motivate each other to continue to run the course that the Lord had laid out before them. And so as they were sitting there chatting and enjoying an early spring day, uh, they were talking, and one of them said to the others, he said, you know, since all of us are, are really such good friends, this might be a good time to discuss and maybe confess to each other some of the personal spiritual struggles that we're having, some of the sins that we are continually battling against. And that way we can pray for each other and encourage each other. And They all nodded in agreement and said, yeah, that's good, that's good. And so the first one spoke up and he said, you know, I'd just like to share with you guys the fact that, you know, and I could never, I could never talk about this with my church, but I'd just like to share with you guys the fact that, you know, my church is so rough on me that I go home and drink at night. Um, and I drink to excess, and I, I basically go to bed with a bottle. And they said, wow, that's pretty bad. You know, you, you know, and they began to counsel him and offer him some encouragement from the scriptures. And the others were pretty motivated. They are like, yeah, okay, he's, you know, he, he just confessed to us that he's basically a borderline alcoholic. I guess this is a safe place. We can, we can share. So the second one said, well, you know, I, I'd just like to share with you guys that my big problem is... Um, that I don't feel my church pays me enough money, so I, I gamble to try and supplement my income. He said, in fact, I, I've actually lost more than I've, I've won, and on occasion, I've even been tempted to take money out of the offering plate. The others gasped, like, oh my goodness, that's horrible. And so again, the other two are thinking, okay, this is a safe place. They're, they're, we're really getting raw with each other. We're confessing and praying and encouraging each other from the scriptures. And so the third one said, you know, I... I am becoming quite fond of a, a woman in my church, a married woman. And I've been very, very tempted to have an affair with her. Gasps all around the, the group there. They continue to pray for him and encourage him. And 
it was really a good time in which they began to hold each other accountable for their, for their sins. And finally, they realized that the fourth one had yet to share. And they said, come on, brother, tell us, what, what struggles do you have? He said, oh, I couldn't tell you guys. I, it's, it's trivial compared to the things that you guys are struggling with. I said, oh, no, it's okay. Like, all sin is, is bad. You know, this is a safe place where we can trust each other and confide in each other. He said, well, so the fact is, uh, I'm an incurable gossip. I was expecting a little bit of a, sounded funnier in my sermon preparation this week. How horrible would that be? A safe place to share your sins, to confide, to confess, and to have that plastered all over the, uh, all over the world, right? Gossip. And, and, you know, pastors are equally prone to it. You know, there, there, there's no spiritual sort of uh, exemption for individuals who, uh, who minister. Indeed, I think uh, there's really none, as I was reading this joke this last week, I thought there's really none of these sins in here that, you know, pastors are not equally prone to. I think that all of us in our lives, we would struggle with different things. Some of us might struggle, uh, you know, with impurity. Some of us might struggle with get-rich-quick schemes such as gambling. Some of us might struggle, uh, you know, with, with alcohol or substance abuse. All of us, all of us have struggled with gossip. Gossip is uh, particularly pernicious. It's, it's basically the precursor to slander. Indeed, gossip gives way really quickly to slander because gossip at its core is essentially trying to exalt yourself by belittling those whom you are talking about behind their back and in such a way as uh, to put them down, to disclose some secret information that no one has. I think Shakespeare put it best in Othello. He writes this, good name in man and woman. It is the immediate jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, tis nothing. Twas mine, tis his, has been slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name, he robs me of that which enriches him not and makes me poor indeed. That's the essence of gossip. That's the essence of slander. And it's been around since day one. Indeed, if you look back in the book of Genesis, you'll find that one of the very first acts of sin that was perpetrated upon the human race by Satan was the sin of slander, the sin of engaging in a bit of gossip and backbiting. Satan, Lucifer, meeting Eve in the garden, says to her, did God really say you shouldn't eat of that particular tree? And then comes the smear. God knows if you eat of that tree, you'll be just like God. Slandering God's character, smearing God's reputation, throwing God under the bus before Eve. That was the trick. Words, guys, words have incredible power. And Jesus promises to you and me that if we're following him correctly, as he has never been exempt from smear and slander, neither will his people. You and I in this room can measure how closely we are walking with the Lord, how carefully we are fulfilling his requirements 
for us as his people by taking a measure of the critical and slanderous things that are said about us. Look at what Christ says here. Chapter 10, verse 24. He makes the statement, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now, it's fairly straightforward. The beginning statement that Jesus is making, he's called them to go out and to begin to proclaim the gospel. And as they go out and as they proclaim the gospel, he has warned them that they can encounter persecution of a physical kind, of a torturous kind, we're talking literal physical persecution, from government authorities as well as from family members. Indeed, he's going to reiterate that as we go on through the rest of this text. He's going to be sure to remind us on several occasions as we continue our way through Matthew chapter 10 that our family members, indeed our closest relatives, will persecute us for our Christian walk. And here he says, as we follow Christ and his example we're not somehow going to be immune from the things that he suffered from. Point blank, a disciple is not above his teacher. If you follow your teacher, if you imitate your teacher, if you employ the practices in your life that your teacher has called you to employ, that means your life will be shaped to look like your teacher. And if your life is shaped to look like him, then whatever his life looks like is how your life is going to look like, not better than his life, the same as. And in order to emphasize that, he says it a second time, a servant isn't above his master. A servant follows his master, a servant honors his master, a servant does what his master tells him to do. So we have teacher and we have master. These two images are connected to each other. Then we have student and servant. So by studying Christ, following Christ, we serve him. He is our teacher, and as our teacher, he is our master. And as these two ideas are conjoined together in one, he says, we'll not be above him, and we won't go beyond him. Verse 25, it is sufficient for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. We're trying to be like Jesus Christ. And here's what happens as a result of that. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household. Now you have Jesus up here. They started to call him Beelzebul, which is basically an epithet for Satan. It's a a reference to a Canaanite deity uh, commonly understood as the Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub or Beelzebul. These are two different uh, variations on it. It was a reference to the Canaanite god of Baal, And uh, it was an epithet that was used by Jews to liken the Canaanite god of Baal to basically a lord of the flies. There were carrion flies that were predominant in in Palestine that would uh, hover around cow dung. And so it was sort of a derogatory put down. Beelzebub or Beelzebul 
could be another way of expressing. It's a, it's a play on words. Uh, Beelzebub was the name they gave their God, but the Jews would play on words and turn it to Beelzebul, which is basically a statement, God of the dung, or Lord of the flies. And so they would use this as a derogatory, slanderous term. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day is a term that they still used as an epithet for Satan. It's a way to describe Satan, God's number one arch enemy. And they called Jesus Satan in a derogatory, horribly grotesque manner, using the most dirtiest sort of word they could come up with, the grossest sort of figure that they could apply to Jesus. Not only is he Satan, not only is he the great arch enemy of God, we're going to use this term that we've used to describe the Canaanite god of Baal, this god of dung, and we're going to apply it to Jesus. He is Satan. He is Lord of the dung. Is that pretty insulting? Yeah, absolutely it is. Is that what you and I can expect? Look at the text a little bit more carefully. Jesus says, here's me. All, all eyes up here. You're going to have to see this because I'm doing a thing with my hands. Okay. <laughs> Everybody's looking at the text. I told you to. That's my fault. Look at your text. But no, really, look up here. Okay, Focus on me. Jesus is here. The persecution that they inflict upon him is here. What did they do to him? Ultimately, they arrested him in the middle of the night. They beat him. They tortured him. And finally, they crucified him, killing him on a cross. They started by calling him Beelzebub. So you have Jesus here. You have his torture, his persecution, his ridicule here. Now, if you look at the words in the text, he says it's sufficient that you should be like your teacher. So you have Jesus and his persecution, the things that he endured up here. And he's saying that if you aspire to be like Jesus, that is, you try to come up to the level that Jesus is at, you try to reflect his life in your life to be like him, you come up to his level, the persecution of the world will meet you. So the more you aspire to come to Christ's level, it's as though Jesus is like a fulcrum. It's like we're on a teeter-totter of sorts. On one end, you have the world's hatred. And then there's you on the other end. And the more you try to lift yourself up to the level of Christ, the more the world is going to come crashing down upon you. That's what Christ is saying here. It is sufficient or it is enough for you to be like me, and then he makes a statement, if they have called me, the master of the house, Beelzebul, Lord of the dung, Lord of the flies, how much more will they malign those of his household? He uses the word more. Now, I don't think it's possible for any person in this room to endure more than what Jesus endured. This is clearly hyperbole. He's speaking here for dramatic effect. Any exaggeration that Christ would use is going to be used in such a way as to drive the idea home into our minds that there's no getting around this. If we try to be like Christ, if he was persecuted, he says, you will be even more persecuted. Again, it's not possible to really go beyond the realm of what Jesus endured. So his point must be simply that 
don't think that your life will be in any regard any less problematic, any less troubling, or any less persecuted than his life was if you reach and aspire to his level, to walk like him. Now, some of you are here today and you're saying, that's all well and good, Joshua, but uh, we live in Canada. It's a Christian country. We believe in freedom of religion and freedom of speech, and so we likely won't endure persecution. This last week, I was in life group. I don't know. Is this okay to share this? Okay, sorry. I just saw you kind of laughing at me, and I thought it's just kind of, this is an impromptu thing. It's not my sermon notes. This last week, I was in life group with Odette. As many of you know, the lawyers this past week voted to censor Trinity Western University's law school, TWU's law school, because TWU operates on the basis of a Christian covenant, just like we do here, that there is not only a certain idea to believe, but there are certain practices that lifestyle that should flow out of those beliefs. So in the same way that we have a statement of faith, a belief, something that we hold to that we believe to be true, that obviously should work its way out into the way that we live our lives. So we have a faith, something that we hold to, and well as a covenant. Well, TWU operates on those same principles. They have a covenant at their school. That covenant stipulates that, you know, you're going to live a life of purity prior to marriage, and uh, you won't engage in, in so, any sort of uh, impure or improper activities outside of marriage. One of the caveats to this covenant, therefore, is that realistically you could not be an openly practicing homosexual and attend this university because the covenant would provide grounds for the university to remove you as an openly practicing homosexual from from the university. So the Law Lawyers Association, this is impromptu, so I'm not sure what the official names are, but the, the lawyer group said, we don't, uh, we don't like that, and voted against it. And my dear sister, who honored us all this morning by baking cookies for all of us, being a Christian, believing that she had a higher responsibility to the Lord, voted against what the overwhelming majority of her lawyer group voted in favor of TWU. And those little facts got out and spread around at work. And she didn't necessarily have a conversation with anyone about it. She didn't uh, necessarily go out and say, you're all going to hell. She just voted in favor of TWU. And the persecution came. Where now people are whispering about her behind her back. People are saying things directly to her face, I believe. Snarky, mean-spirited comments. So you say, we live in a Christian country. There would be no persecution. There's persecution, guys. I, uh, I would like to read Spurgeon. I also enjoy reading sermons by another fellow by the name of Alexander McLaren. He's a contemporary of Spurgeon. Now, you need to understand, both Charles Spurgeon and Alexander McLaren, they lived in the 1800s. They both ministered in London. And uh, in the 1800s, for those of you who are familiar with your British history, this is the height of the British Empire. This is when Great Britain, it's literally the sun never sets on the empire. They own colonies, they own establishments all around the world. They are imperialists. And um, it's also the age of Christianity in Great Britain. It's the Victorian age. So all of Great Britain 
vast majority of individuals, the overwhelming majority of individuals participate in church in some form or fashion on a Sunday morning. Which makes the comments of Alexander McLaren incredibly poignant. You would think in a society that has considered the fact that it owns empire and has colonies all around the world and openly attributes those successes to the gifts and the blessing and the honor of Almighty God in which the queen actively participates in church on a regular basis and you have men even like Spurgeon who can rise to prominence and national and even international fame as a result of their gift for preaching the word. You would think a country like this would be a country where no Christian persecution would ever happen. And yet, Alexander McLaren, interesting comment. If we are like Jesus Christ in conduct, and if we have received His Word as the truth upon which we repose, depend upon it in our measure and in varying fashions, we shall have to bear the same kind of treatment that Jesus received from the world. The days of so-called persecution are over in so-called Christian countries, or so they say. But if you are a disciple, not in name, but in the sense of believing all that Jesus Christ says and taking him for your teacher, the public opinion of this day will have a great many things to say about you that you will not enjoy very much, nor will they be very pleasant. You will be considered to be old-fashioned, narrow, behind the times. Do you know when he wrote this? 1847. We are living in 2014. Have you ever been told that you're behind the times and thought this is a novel thing, that just a few short years ago all the world was Christian and now it's suddenly drifting away? It's never been that way. If any country was Christian, it was going to be Great Britain in the middle of the 1800s. And yet Alexander McLaren, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, can write that to suggest that we hold Christ as the ultimate standard of truth, not only just going to church on Sundays and calling ourselves Christian, but that every area of our life should conform to what he says, to suggest that would be to produce insult and ridicule along lines of very new and very novel criticisms that none of us have ever heard before. Narrow-minded, not with the times, behind the times. He goes on to say, look at the bitter spirit of antagonism to an earnest and simple Christianity. Whereas the great world considers the adoption of Christ as our authoritative teacher, as just religiosity. It is a very small matter as measured with what Christian men used to have to bear before our century, but it still indicates the set of things. We may make up our minds that if we are not contented with the pared-down Christianity, which the world allows to pass at present, but insist upon coming to the New Testament for our beliefs and practices and avow that I believe all that Jesus Christ says, and I believe it because he says it, and I take him as my model. We shall find out that the disciple indeed has to be as his master, that the Pharisees and the scribes of today stand in the same relation to the followers of today as their predecessors did yesterday and of bygone days. And if you are like your master in conduct, 
you will be no more popular with this world than he does, than he was, sorry, than he was. As long as Christianity will be quiet, let the world go along on its own gate. The world is very well contented to leave it alone or even to say polite things to it, even to a certain degree to participate with it. Why should the world take the trouble of persecuting the kind of Christianity that so many of us display? What is the difference between our Christianity and their worldliness? Now, does that speak to you guys today? Just ask yourself this simple question. Are you slandered for your faith in Jesus Christ? If your response to that is no, then your spiritual growth has been stunted. Slander, being mocked and ridiculed for your faith, is a component of growing in your faith. If you follow Jesus, his teaching is very clear, you will be ridiculed. You will be mocked. So if you are not mocked, perhaps you are not being as vocal as he has called you to be in the spiritual discipline of evangelism. Say, I don't know how you connect that. Yes, yes, it's right here in the text. Look with me. Now, for real, you can look back at the text. I won't do any more hand gestures. It makes a statement. Again, this is the tail end of verse 25. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, Lord of the dung, Lord of the flies, how much more will they malign those of his household? Verse 26. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, proclaim on the rooftops. The kind of Christianity that Jesus is calling for us to embrace is two things. Number one, it is not the Christianity of popularity. Number two, it is not the Christianity of secrecy. The first thing I want you to look at right here. Verse 26, have no fear of them. Do not be afraid of them. He's going to repeat this several times. You're going to see it here in verse 26, have no fear of them. And then he's going to say it again, verse 20, oh, I'm losing my place here. Verse 28, do not fear them. And again in verse 31, fear not. He's going to say it on three separate occasions, and indeed those three exclamations, not to be afraid, are going to form the three points for why we are called to proclaim Christ, to be like Christ. Number one, Christianity is not the religion of popularity. It is not the religion of common agreement, and this makes it radically different. You see, we serve the true God who is completely indifferent to what the world thinks. He is completely indifferent. He doesn't stick his finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing. 
He doesn't find out what makes for polite society. He doesn't make, he doesn't figure out what makes for comfortable living and then adjust his teachings to reflect the shifting sands of the times. It's absolute. You talk about Jesus regardless of what kind of a culture you're in and how open or how receptive of that culture that culture would be of Christ. Verse 27 makes it explicitly clear. What I tell you in the dark, now the verse begins with what I tell you in the dark. And again, what you hear whispered, proclaim. And in this day and age, rabbis would begin to teach their disciples in terms of public speaking in a very unusual practice. They would whisper in their ears, and as they were, the rabbis would whisper in the disciples' ears, and whatever they whispered in the disciples' ears, that disciple of that rabbi would then start to proclaim it. I was really intrigued when I read that this week, and I thought, that's different. I couldn't see myself standing up here with Ryan Weinberg being like, okay, say this. And him like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay, say this, blah, 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 blah. I, uh, I was actually studying, and I, I uh, <laughs> came up, when I, stumbled upon a, a Jewish website, a, a school where they trade rabbis, and uh, I was reading up on this, and, and it's actually quite helpful to public speakers because they have to learn how to listen to what you're saying and simultaneously speak. Um, you know, sometimes trumpet players and people who blow winded instruments, they, they have to learn how to do circular breathing. They have to learn how to be able to sort of breathe in at the same time that they're sort of blowing out, and I don't really know how any of that works. It sounds like craziness to me, but it's true that there are musicians that do that, and so you have to learn that sort of practice. At the same time, I, I have had to learn over the last, you know, five and a half years being your guys' preacher how to think, read my notes, keep one eye on the time, and simultaneously preach, okay? I'm trying to juggle a lot of thoughts up in my brain, and uh, so you, most of you are aware I've basically forgotten about the time. Uh, can't do it all. Anyway, um, the, the rabbis are saying, you know, that when they teach their the students how to preach, um, they, they will whisper in their ear because the student doesn't really need to worry so much about the message expounding upon the Torah to start with. He needs to get over two things. He needs to get over fear of public speaking and simultaneously he has to learn the discipline of being able to direct his attention in multiple different ways. In other words, he has to learn how to speak eloquently and persuasively while simultaneously listening to what the person standing next to him is whispering. And what they're trying to do is learn to teach that student and help that student to learn how to split their, their thought and their attention in different directions simultaneously so they can learn to be good speakers. Jesus has this phenomenon taking place in this day and age. Rabbis will travel around, and they've got a following of students, and, and so it's not an uncommon sight in Jerusalem, in first century Israel, for guys learning for the first time how to stand up and be leaders in the synagogues, and the rabbi's going to stand up next to him and whisper in his ear while the guy's preaching. And, and the rabbi's the one with the sermon. The guy doing the preaching is just learning how to say it persuasively while simultaneously listening. And Jesus is saying, what you hear from me playing with this imagery of a rabbi teaching a student to speak, what you hear from me, you proclaim that. Now that's what they're doing. The rabbis are doing with their students. This is what Jesus is doing with his students. And here's the difference. Jesus is saying, 
do it on the rooftops. What does that mean? Is he literally calling us to go up on the rooftops? Is he literally calling us to go up onto the houses, onto the roofs of our houses, and to yell out at my neighbor across the street, yell at the cars as they're driving by, Jesus loves you. Again, you'd have to understand first century context to get it. In the first century, whenever there was a public announcement, they didn't have the radio, they didn't have TV, they didn't have any like public service announcements, they didn't have internet or anything like this. Whenever there was to be any kind of an announcement or any kind of a public you know, call to some sort of an assembly, they would do it on the rooftops. They didn't have windows like we have today, they didn't have like insulated walls, they all lived very, very close together in tight, compacted communities. And so if there was to be any kind of an assembly or any kind of a gathering, they'd go up on their roof and they would literally on the tops of their roofs just yell it out and everybody could hear you for, you know, maybe 100 yards or so. And then a couple of other guys would hear it. They would, public duty, public service, they would go up on their houses, they'd hear what you said and they would yell it on further down the road and it was like, kind of like a game of telephone. That's what they would do. Now Jesus is saying, what I teach you what I say to you, however you hear it, whether it be around the campfire at night, just me and my guys, at the end of a long day, and I do a life group sort of Bible study session with you guys, if it's something that you learned in the dark, as in your own private prayer closet, reading your Bible, However it comes to you, whether whispered in the private, quiet moments of devotion, whether it comes to you in the form of the Sunday sermon, whether it comes to you in the form of the midweek life group Bible study, what Jesus says to you through his word, the calling is to make it as public as we possibly can. That's the discipline that Christ has called us to. You're looking at these words. Have no fear of them. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. You'll notice that the verbs there, what I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. And again, it says, what you hear whispered, proclaim it. These are imperatives. These are commands. Have no fear of them because it's all coming out sooner or later. He says, you should proclaim what I tell you because there is nothing covered or hidden that will not be made known. What you guys hear what you read in this book, whether you tell your neighbors or not, they will learn about it someday soon. You might as well be the one to tell them because they are going to find out. 
And when they do, they're going to wonder why you didn't tell them. Of course, when you tell them, they're going to hate you for it. Some of you are here and you're thinking, that seems rather unusual. You talk, Josh, about how this is a spiritual discipline, that this is something that's critical to the formation of our soul. It seems cruel and unusual what the Lord is asking us to do. We're to tell people about Him. We're to proclaim every element of truth that we have gleaned from His Word. We're to make that known. And we're promised that when we do that, the world will hate us for it. We're told to expect that. Why would God send us out to proclaim a message that the world so does not want to hear? They're going to hate us for telling them. Shouldn't we just let them be left alone to their own devices? And shouldn't we invest our energy in something more productive? After all, isn't this incredibly impractical? Isn't this just not pragmatic? talking with a friend recently who has recently come to faith. He shared with me, and he told me it was okay to share this with you guys. He said, I feel kind of like I gave my life to the Lord. He loved me so much that he died on the cross and he saved me from my sins, and then he sort of just pitched me out behind enemy lines and told me that my calling in life now was to become a POW, and I need to just be okay with that. And I said to him, that's very astute, actually. Yes, I think that's exactly how it is. Your calling in life is to live a child of the king, held captive behind enemy lines. Now, what kind of value would there be? What, what kind of value could there possibly be in us doing that? How would that form our souls, to intentionally proclaim the truth to this world, knowing that they would hate us and persecute us for it. Two weeks ago, uh, an eminent American statesman by the name of Henry Kissinger was having his 90th birthday. Most of you guys are not familiar with American politics. You probably have never heard this name, or if you have heard it, you're probably not one of the younger fellows in the room. He was a, okay, he's heard of it. Good for you, Dustin, good for you. He is an American statesman. He served during the Nixon administration, early 70s at the height of the Vietnam War. In fact, the Nixon administration had determined that it was time for the United States to be done with the, United, with the Vietnam War, and he had sent Kissinger over to, uh, to conclude hostilities, to arrange for ceasefire, things of this nature. Speaking at his 90th birthday, another prominent American statesman, a senator, most of you are probably familiar with this guy, by the name of John McCain, spoke in honor of Henry Kissinger. You see, John McCain was a prisoner of war. His bomber was shot down 
over the skies of Vietnam, and he was taken prisoner. He was held captive in the Hanoi Hilton, that's the name of the POW camp where prisoners of war were held. He broke his arms, both of them, as he ejected from his crashing bomber plane that day. He broke them on the way down. He was caught up in the canopy in the, of the jungle, and he broke both arms. And while he was in captivity, using a shovel handle and a hammer, they made sure that both of his arms stayed broken. That's kind of torture that they inflicted. Now, John McCain is the son of a rear admiral. His father, also by the name of John McCain, was a high-ranking officer in the United States Navy. One of the things that the uh, Viet, Viet Cong offered to Henry Kissinger when he went to negotiate the ceasefire and the end of hostilities was the early release of John McCain. To which Henry Kissinger said, no dice. He stays with his crew. He'll come home when he's good and ready. They'll come home together. Forty years later, this is 1973. We're talking 40 years ago. That's half a lifetime ago, guys. John McCain was deliberately left behind enemy lines when he could have gone home. Speaking two weeks ago at Henry Kissinger's 90th birthday, he thanked Henry Kissinger for leaving him there. He made the statement. For several years, a long time ago, I struggled to preserve my honor in a situation where it was severely tested. Listen to this next statement. The longer you struggle with something, the more you come to cherish it. After a while, my honor, which in that situation was entirely invested in the relations and the reputation I had with my fellow POWs, became not just my most cherished possession, it was my only possession. I had nothing else left. When Henry, Henry Kissinger, came to Hanoi, to conclude the agreement that would end America's war in Vietnam. The Vietnamese told him that they would send me home with him. He refused the offer. Quote, Commander McCain will return in the same order as the others. Kissinger knew my early release would be seen as favoritism to my father and a violation of our code of conduct. By rejecting this last attempt to suborn a dereliction of duty, Henry saved my reputation, my honor, my life. And really, I've owed him a debt ever since. Now listen to me, guys. You're thinking this is tough. There's incredible insight here from a man who actually was left behind enemy lines, who was tortured for nothing other than just being an American. The same way you and I we are called to live here in this world behind enemy lines where the enemy wants to torture us for being nothing other than children of his majesty, Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord's instructions are that we are to proclaim that for their blessing and their benefit, but understand this. 
It's for you as well. Because the longer you struggle with this, the more you will cherish it. Your soul will begin to take on the shape and the form of Jesus. Where there are things in your life that are more important than your life. And the thing you are called to cherish the most is the name. The precious name above all names. The name of Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer.